0: church for any amount of time, you've probably heard this phrase. He must increase, I must decrease. That truth leads us uh, to the reality that those who are faithful with little, Jesus said, they can be trusted with more. It's a stewardship issue, okay? The corollary is Less of self, less selfishness makes you a suitable candidate for leadership, makes you a suitable candidate to take responsibility for others in the body of Christ. And then the inverse is true as well. Those who seek to make much of themselves end up forfeiting the possibility of leading others in the kingdom. There's this, there's this way that God has set it up that's just totally antithetical, upside down to the way that our world works. Amen. And, it, and it's beautiful. In its design, Amen. so our progression is less of me, less of me, less interest uh, in, in stewarding, um, in, in, excuse me, more faithful stewardship of what belongs to God, and and so the, as I as I diminish in me and myself, and and there's more stewardship of what belongs to God, then I'm knowing Him more. I'm experiencing Him daily. I'm growing in that relationship but it seems that many evangelicals in the american church anyway are embracing the inverse what i see a lot of is more of me not more of jesus more of me leads to less in stewarding less stewardship of what belongs to god because i think that it's about me and it all belongs to me which is totally inverting and and, and then i and, and therefore i'm knowing him less i'm experiencing him less and less That's what I see, the the, the major trend in the American church today, is more of me, not more of him. And 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 I think this is a warning to us as the church in the United States at this moment. um, The call of the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus Christ, is not to make much of ourselves. It's not even to make much of the church is not to make much of our own clever ideas and our best efforts at philosophies. The call of Jesus is to make much of him. Amen. Amen. We, we must decrease. He must increase. Amen. So we're going to just jump right into the text this morning because that's really what it's all about. We're in John chapter 3. Um, we'll be in John. We'll, we'll hit some Matthew and Mark as well and a little bit of Luke along the way. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time, we are in a study through uh, a thing called the Harmony of the Gospels. It's all four Gospels laid out side by side as the events occurred in chronological order. So sometimes you'll get just John recording something. Sometimes you'll get all four Gospels, sometimes just three. And so uh, we're just going chronologically through all four Gospels at the same time. And and John the Apostle is very deliberate in his chronology. You know, in John three twenty four. Uh, you, you read that, uh, and we'll see this in just a minute, um, it places everything prior to, to, to this, this section of Scripture um, before uh, the Gospel account, Mark 1:4, John the Baptist's arrest. So we're previous, we're, we're jumping in just before John the Baptist is going to be arrested. So let's, let's go to John 3, and we're going to start in 22 and go down to 36. So it says, after this... Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming to be baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So John the Apostle, very deliberate here in his chronology, um, he, he takes us back to the scene of the car crash. Do you remember this? If you were with us week one, week two, we talked about Four gospel accounts, um, uh, skeptics will say, non-Christians will say, oh, you've got conflicting accounts of all these things. So no, 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 if you're a good police officer, if you're a good detective and you come up on the scene of a car crash and you've got four eyewitnesses, you know that you've got all the information you really need. If you only had one eyewitness, that would be bad because you're only going to get one perspective. But to get four perspectives, a good police officer coming to that car crash would Interview those people. He would know that the one driver of the the mom in the white minivan, she saw that the black sedan ran the red light and crossed the intersection. And the other driver of the 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 oh. Grand Torino. Does so anybody remember Gran Torino? <laughs> yeah. I just had the the, the, the green Grand Torino. My grandmother had one of those. It was amazing. And you know, so that police officer is going to take those eyewitness accounts and he's going to put those together, and there's going to be a better more comprehensive whole picture of what actually happened. That's what we have in the gospel accounts. And so we're we're back to the scene of the car crash with the four eyewitnesses this morning. And verse 25 here in John 3 says, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, over this concept of purification. And though we covered this in recent weeks, I wanted to stop and make the point again pertaining to baptism. Baptism is how we refer to the act of obedience that follows a person's conversion to Christ. That's, that's a, a, a natural uh, follow-up to somebody putting their faith in Jesus. The word baptize is from the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse in water. So the concepts derived from uh, the Hebrew word mikvah, which was a ritual bath or a cleansing, Symbolic of repentance in the life of the person, but again, and we said this in, in recent weeks, John the Mikvah just doesn't roll off the tongue, so we go with John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, it just works better. Um, but baptism is a sacrament, and, and what that word means, not, not in the Catholic sense, it's not imparting any uh, salvation to us, but it's a physical picture of a spiritual reality, it's a symbolic thing. And the reason I believe in baptism by immersion or, or, or dunking people is that it's the more scriptural mode of baptism because going under the water more accurately portrays the spiritual reality of what's happening in the life of the person. He or she is identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So so we say buried with Christ in baptism unto death and raised to walk in newness of life. That's right? a picture of that old life dying and going away and the person coming alive in Jesus and to live a brand new life in Christ Jesus sprinkling just doesn't convey that as well right um, so that's that's a that's a preference that I I hold to but going under the water is a great picture of dying and being buried especially if you hold people down for a long time <laughs> yeah. in the water uh, <laughs> some of you were thinking about getting baptized and you just decided no uh, <laughs> but we don't we don't hold people down for too long. Uh, so, verse 26. You, I just want you to go away with a little bit of a question mark in your mind. Uh, verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Why is that other church doing so well down the street, right? And here we see the jealousy and competition within the church, the, the early church already rearing its ugly head. It would have been more... Accurate maybe to call this covetousness. Do you know the difference between jealousy and covetousness? See, covetousness is an intense desire for something that belongs to somebody else. I want what they have, but it's not mine to have. And and maybe it's splitting hairs, but um, jealousy is different because jealousy is the intense desire for something that belongs to me that somebody else has taken and has possession of. See, this is why scripture says God is a jealous God because we belong to him. He, he he owns us, he made us, and he longs for us. He's not covetous, he's jealous, and jealous is not a bad thing. Um, so Jesus is never covetous, but he does become jealous for what is his, namely the people that he's made in his image. There's, there's no jealousy happening here on the part of John the baptizer. He rightly recognizes what his disciples do not recognize, namely that all those repentant people who are contrite at heart, mm-hmm. They belong to Jesus. Amen. John might have baptized. He might have been the guy to dunk them, but they belong to Jesus. And so do those uh, those baptisms and repentant conversions also belong to Christ. He's John's just a servant of the king. There's no room for competition with the living God. He's so well aware that his disciples feel a little bit of that jealousy, a little bit of that covetousness. Although um, John the Baptist has a good response for them. In verse 27, he answers them and says, you know, a person can't receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Amen. It's not like I've gone out and made this happen. John the baptizer is essentially saying, I'm just a servant of Christ the King. All I have is his. I'm just a steward. I've just been entrusted with something for a time. Or, or Paul would put it this way in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul says, well, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, if it's been given to you, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it, as if you, you you did it yourself, as if you earned these things, right? And so we'd be careful. We, we, we do well to tread carefully here. It's really easy to begin to think that we own a thing mm-hmm. or that we're the maker of a thing or the master of a thing. Even our families, even our own homes, even our belongings, listen to me. They're all on loan from Jesus. Right. Yeah. None of that belongs to you. You and I are merely stewards of everything that belongs to God. Right. And, and as a church, we've got to shift our thinking to that. Um, that that includes, just, just so we can be exhaustive on our list, that includes your children. They belong to Jesus. You're a steward. Better steward them well. Your house. Oh, we just paid off our mortgage. That's my house. No, no, no. It belongs to Jesus. He lets you live there. He's the one that provided the money for you to pay off the note. Um, so your house, your kids, your car, your money, your marriage, your life, that that meat pump <laughs> in your chest that runs on donuts, that belongs to him, right? All of it. And so coming to the place of embracing that reality is really freeing for us. That's right. so what Jesus wants for us. It frees us to be generous, open-handed with everything that belongs to God and to hold on to things loosely because none of it is ours. So, well, that's what he calls us to And when we fail to have this attitude the church is a clutching, grasping entity, we hold on to things that don't belong to us, we we try to keep them close to ourselves and, and that attitude, that disposition leads us to a place of manipulation and we strive to control things that don't belong to us, if we want to be entrusted with more of Christ's kingdom, we cannot neglect this fundamental shift in our thinking it's all his, it belongs to him, it's not ours. Right, or stewards, and and and, and so um, you had to know at some point I was going to bring back another illustration from the Lord of the Rings. Uh, somebody's like, ah, uh, uh, you're going to tough it out. It's okay. I'll make it quick. Uh, in the Return of the King, Gandalf confronts Denethor. Denethor's the steward of Gondor. Okay, if you've seen the movie, seen the scene. If you've read the book, you get extra points for having read it. Okay, if you haven't ever read it. That's your homework this week. Um, <laughs> after you've read your Bible every night, some of the Lord of the Rings. Um, so the ancient realm, this, this realm, had been without a king for generations, and the line of the stewards were entrusted with the care of the realm until the one true king would come and take his seat on the throne again. That sounds really familiar. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is almost an allegory happening there. But, but some became selfish with these stewards wanting the rule of Gondor for themselves. And so Gandalf comes into this situation and he sternly reminds Denethor, who's the steward, that it's not within his power to prevent the returning of the king because that's exactly what he wants to do. His delusion of ownership had clouded his perspective as a steward to the point he actually wanted to prevent the king from sitting on the throne. And, and, I, and I said, well, let's move on from this really quickly except that, well... I know that many times in my life, I've kind of been like that, kind of felt like that, said things like that. And, and, and I hear Christians say things like, well, man, I hope Jesus doesn't come back soon. I really want to yeah. fill in the blank. But, um, so that's an indication that we're not stewarding well what we think we own, yeah. right? Or I, I'm just not ready for Jesus to return. I'm enjoying this thing too much. So you're enjoying this thing more than wanting to be with Jesus? That's a, that's a problem. Yeah, That's a problem. Indeed. And So we've got to be aware, right? We've we got to be aware of, of what we're saying, and, and, and it's a reflection of our heart, the thinking of our hearts. This attitude is deadly to our faith. It reinforces wrong thinking, that we're owners and, and not just stewards. And so thank the Lord for John the Baptist here in the text, because he speaks up and he brings clarity to this issue and this muddled thinking. He says in verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride, that's the bridegroom. And then the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete, John the Baptist says. So what he says, we should anticipate the king's return with expectancy and gladness and great joy and not apprehension. Amen. If, you're, if you experience apprehension where you hear me talk about the coming of Jesus Christ, there might be some sin that needs to be dealt with. There, there, there perhaps you don't fully understand what the Bible has to say about this reality and the joy that will be ours when He comes. In either case, I, I, I'd, I'd love to help you this week. We'll, we'll get coffee. You pay. I'll pray. We'll get this. We'll get this straightened out. John, John the Baptizer, is elated to hand the baton off to Jesus. He knows he's not the owner. He knows he's not the star player. He's just merely a steward seeking to be found faithful in all that his master has charged him to do. He's the friend of the bridegroom. Now, we would call that person in our in our modern American wedding paradigm, the best man. He's the best man. Um, and, and he describes the role in verse 29 and it ends with a personal pronoun. John says, this joy of Mine, he says, the, the, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, hears his voice, and this joy is it belongs to me. It's, mine, it's my joy. I get the privilege of being the best man. And the bride in the in this is who? The church. The church. Jesus is the groom. We're the bride. And, and the bride is the church. And, and everybody's put their faith in Christ alone, the for <coughs> forgiveness of sins. And then John says this in verse 30. Listen to this. He says, He must increase, but I must decrease. And I just want to say to you this morning, this needs to be the heartbeat of every born-again believer of Jesus Christ. He must increase, I must decrease. In our lives, in our speech, in the way we carry ourselves, in our families, in every situation, in every circumstance, he must increase through us and the necessary consequences that we must decrease in ourselves. And then John just keeps going in verse 31. He who comes from a, a who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And John the Baptist is talking about Jesus here, the Son of God from heaven. And God the Son bears witness regarding humanity and sin and everything else. And we know that his testimony is true. And so in verse 35, John the Baptist goes on. He says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand, and whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Have you ever stopped and thought about eternity? How long it will be? After about 30 seconds, it starts to hurt. It's forever. We can't even conceptualize eternity. Because we, we're, we're living in these finite bodies. We've only ever known uh, a, a world of decay and atrophy yeah and, and God's gonna just get rid of all that stuff and we're going to be with him for eternity I can't even this is crazy and, and, and so here's verse 31 to 36 is all about Jesus as John the Baptist is speaking he's testifying uh, John's making uh, the, the the handoff at the altar if you will right as the best man um, this is the moment in the wedding where the pastor asks the question Is there anyone here who has reason why this man and this woman should not enter into holy matrimony? Let them speak now, right, or forever hold their peace. So as the best man, and this is actually the betrothal. Go home and do some research on the wedding paradigm in ancient Israel. The best man, John is affirming the goodness and the rightness of this arrangement, this marriage, as the fulfillment of what the prophets had only prophesied in part because they didn't understand all of it, right? And apart from this strange apparel of John and his diet of locusts and wild honey, there's this other point of interest about John the baptizer that we hadn't really touched on yet, and it's that he is the closure of the old covenant, not Malachi. Right? It's John the Baptist that closes out the old covenant. And, and, and just, to, just to clarify, you know, John the Baptist, the, the, the best man is not the bride, He's not the bride. He's the best man. Now, that's confusing in our day because their best man is the bride. So, it's crazy weddings all over the place. Um, so I just want to make that really clear. He's the best man, not the bride. And And so John is clearly stating he's not part of the new covenant church, but he is, in fact, the closure of the old covenant as the friend of the bridegroom, as the best man, and he's rejoicing at what's coming. He's rejoicing in this new covenant that is coming. And so we... We just roll right over into John chapter four, verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, so John the Baptist was seeing Christ for who he really was and the purpose of John the disciple's gospel, the one that we're reading out of right now, if you'll remember He's focused on on who Jesus is and, and what Jesus is. He's the son of God come from heaven. And we learn here that Jesus, via his disciples, was baptizing and making more disciples than even John the Baptist was. And you gotta know this is stirring up the religious leaders. They see droves of people going to other religious leaders that are not the approved religious leaders. It makes them really... Jealous and, and actually, let's use the correct word, covetous, right? And now they're they're getting angsty. And um, when you're in ministry, I don't know how many of you guys have ever been in ministry for a while, maybe full-time, part-time. But when you're in ministry, you've got to stay boots on the ground. You have to stay connected to actual ministry and not get lost in um, things like the administrative roles, though those are good and necessary like ministry can become, and I see this a lot in churches, it can become about optics. Mm-hmm. For a lot of ministries and churches, it becomes about optics and appearances. And they start asking the question, well, how do people see us? How do we want to be seen? And, and there is something in the question that's worth asking from time to time. But I've seen churches and ministries become consumed with that question to the detriment of all else. Amen. And as a church or a ministry grows bigger and bigger, it's easier and easier to become consumed with perception and optics. And in the process, what happens is sometimes we lose sight of the mission. Yeah. We get so concerned about what the community thinks about us or our perception the community, we lose sight of what Jesus calls us to do. That's right. And so no one has ever navigated the ministry better than Jesus. And so we could, we could stand to learn from him. Um, here he is choosing to get out of town as things are heating up with the religious establishment. And Jesus knows it's not his time yet. He's not ready for the conflict. He's not ready to go to the cross. That's not yet. Um, And so he's he's gonna uh, accomplish more before he has to lay down his life. And so here's a strategic retreat from the proximity to the religious leaders of Israel just to back off. And we'll see Jesus is moved and motivated by love for his people, Israel. But he also, and this is where we're getting into this text here in just a minute in John 4 verse 5 he loves more than just Israel he loves even the Samaritans we'll see that But but let's let's transition verses Matthew 4 12 Mark 1 14 and Luke 4 14 are all the same essential verses here so now when he heard uh, this is Matthew 4 when, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested he withdrew into Galilee so John the Baptist had been arrested Jesus made a strategic retreat. John got picked up by the by the thought police and locked up. Um, Mark 1:14 records the same verse. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. And also Luke's gospel, Luke 4:14, 4, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So this is the region of Galilee, uh, a little to the south. So why was John arrested? Well, John was arrested uh, because he was speaking out against the established religious leaders in their paradigm. And remember that John the baptizer had said openly, openly, publicly, he had to decrease and Jesus had to increase. Folks, let me just say, that's an easy thing to say. It's a hard thing to live when Jesus takes you at your word. Yeah. I, I want to decrease Jesus. I want you to be exemplified and, and made much of and I don't want myself to be made much of. And Jesus says, that's exactly what I want to and then suddenly it's really painful for us. And so uh, it's an easy thing to say again, but a hard thing to live out and embrace. And we'll get to this in the text in the weeks ahead. We'll see what happens to John the Baptist as a result of this. But we'll, we'll look at John 4 five and we're going to go we're going to go on, on to 38. Um, he came to the town of Samaria called Sichar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. And Joseph's well was there. And Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it's about the sixth hour. So let's unpack that because the sixth hour, according to the Jewish reckoning, that reckoning of time in the Middle East would have been about noon. And this would have been the hottest part of the day. And they've traveled, presumably walked, we don't know if they rode animals or if they walked, presumably walked, to Samaria, that's about 30 miles. That's a long walk. So let me give you a little background in history here. In 721 BC, the, the kingdom of uh, Israel had been divided into Israel to the north, Judah to the south, two separate entities. And, um, and so the Assyrians came in To Israel in the north and led many out as captives, but some people remained in the land. Some of the Jews, and they ended up intermarrying with foreigners who'd been planted there by the Assyrian Empire. So these Jews are now marrying non-Jews, and they're they're breeding. So these half-Jewish, half-Gentile people became known as the Samaritans. Uh, When you fast forward to the Book of Nehemiah, you'll find that um, a Jew. Uh, Curried favor with the king, Nehemiah, and went back to the land to rebuild. And it was the Samaritans who were in the land who opposed the rebuilding effort. So so this has created a problem between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's the beginning of a long-lasting hatred between those two groups. And this is the region Jesus is going to on purpose. So it's, it's almost like going to... Planned Parenthood on a Saturday morning. (laughs) That's crazy. Um, Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. See, this is a Markedly different encounter than what we read in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. I mean, you can see the stark differences. Instead of dealing with Jews, he's come to the Samaritans. Like, really, Jesus? You're going to the Samaritans? Man, here's a man talking to a woman in public. That's taboo. Here's a religious leader, and, and she's an adulteress, which we'll see in just a moment. You have to understand how socially taboo this encounter was. It was just way out of... Way out of the ordinary. In fact, when the disciples come back, they're they're befuddled. They're like, what is going on? So so Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. Men did not talk to women in public, often not even their own wives in public. You got to understand how shocked this woman had to be by this initiative on the part of Jesus to talk to her. And not only that, think about the implication. Has she simply obliged him? He had nothing to draw water with, as we'll see. He he would have had to drink from her cup. This is something considered unclean by the Jews. This woman was the marginalized of the marginalized, the outcast of the outcasts, and it didn't matter to Jesus. He didn't didn't care. He didn't care about that. The son of God, the king of the universe, speaks to her where she is. This is the God who touches lepers. He's not bothered by any of those social conventions that we've invented and put in place. So Jesus answered her, he said, You know, if you just knew the gift of God and who it was that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, you can almost imagine kind of the the quizzical look, right? Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He he gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So here's a significant tie to Jacob, right? Remember Jacob's one of the patriarchs of Israel. He's one of the forefathers. And his name, remember Jacob meant heel grabber, usurper, deceiver. This is the same Jacob that wrestled with God. And I love her question. She says, "Are you greater than Jacob our father?" And Jesus is like, "Uh, yeah." I wrestled him a while back and dislocated his hip. And I'm the God who made you. Yeah. So Jesus says, everybody who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That water I will give to him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, well, sir, give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. See, she's still operating in the physical. She's not thinking in the spiritual. She's like, oh, I don't have to come to the well anymore and risk running into people who know about my life and who chastise me, and that'll be awesome. He's like, you still not quite quite understanding. So let's talk about this living water, Isaiah 55, 1 through 8. Here's the prophecy about this. Isaiah says, Come to me, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, not a problem. Come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Isaiah says, listen, diligent to me, diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here so that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Oh, see, this isn't about food. This is about eternal life. And I steadfast, pure love for David? Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples and a leader and commander of the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified you. Seek, and then he says this, I love this, verse six. Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked Forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and return to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. See, this living water is something you cannot buy. You can't go to the store and get it. You just have to ask the Lord for it. Verses six and seven here in Isaiah are key to understanding why Jesus alludes to this prophecy. Seek God. Seek God while you're able, while he is willing to be found. And and, and Jesus is saying to this woman, here I am. I'm right here. Here's the son of God in the flesh. And and, and there's this call here in Isaiah to forsake wickedness and return to the Lord. Submit yourself to the Lord. He will abundantly pardon. What an incredible promise. God can pardon our sins. Yes, yes. He can because of what Jesus did on the cross and so Jesus says to her and this is obviously prior to that event but Jesus says to her in verse 16 so go go call your husband and come here you want to know about this living water I'm happy to tell you why don't you go get your husband and, and then come back and we'll, we'll talk for a little bit because he knows and the woman answered um, I have no husband and so Jesus said Yeah, you're right in saying you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. He just read her mail, right out, right, right, just in her face. Here it is. This is this is what you're living right now. And then, um, so the woman says, verse nineteen. I love this. It's like, all right, let's take this in a different direction. She says, uh, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. We don't want to talk about husbands anymore. Let's talk about the mountain. Okay, that's a little uncomfortable. She's trying to move the conversation in a different direction. Um, Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So now she wants to talk about worship. So she's a slippery one, but Jesus is undaunted, and he tells her more truth about herself than she's willing to reveal. She's an adulteress, Someone will be offended by my saying that word, but this is the reality. When you're on your sixth relationship, something's fundamentally wrong, okay? Uh, How many of you know God can heal that? He can heal that and restore that. He can fix it. He can sanctify it. Uh, she, She just doesn't want to go there. She doesn't want to deal with that. So she attempts to change the subject to worship, and so she starts referencing the mountain. And let me explain the mountain thing because we gotta we gotta wrap our brains around the context. Um, in Deuteronomy 11, as the children of Israel coming into the land, um, God sets this stage for this event. And this is what He says in Deuteronomy 11. He says, "Behold, I set before you this day blessings and curses. You shall proclaim the blessings on Mount Gerizim and the curses on Mount Ebal." That's Deuteronomy 11. So as the children of Israel finally, finally came into the promised land, the God of Israel renewed the covenant with the Israelites as they entered. And there was this solemn ceremony on the slopes of these two mountains as they came into the land, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And and half the Israelite tribes stood on the slopes of Mount Gerizim and represented the blessings of obedience. And the other six tribes stood on the slopes of Mount Ebal and represented the curses that would come upon them as a nation if they disobeyed the Lord. And so here's the scene, two mountains, Gerizim, blessings, Ebal, curses. And the Samaritan woman is referring to Mount Gerizim, the place of blessings, the place of blessings. Bless me, Lord, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me indeed, bless me, Lord. How many of you remember the, the popular book, the prayer of Jabez, the, the craze that happened, right? Bless me, Lord, bless me, bless me, bless me. Popular book, uh, this prayer out of the Old Testament, grossly misunderstood, taken way out of context in our self-centered, yeah. materialistic culture. Yeah. Same reason why guys like Joel Osteen continue to have prominence. It's not because he's preaching the gospel. It's not because the book preached the gospel. It's because they speak the words that people's itchy ears want to hear. Yeah. We right. want Mount Gerizim. We want blessing, blessing, blessing. I don't want to deal with curses. Yeah. I don't want to talk about repercussions of my actions. I okay. just want to bless in contrast to that, Jesus uses the law to reveal sin to this woman and confront her with this reality. And I believe that our gospel presentation needs to include the law of God to bring an awareness of sin. Yeah, but yeah. She, she'd rather change the subject. But again, Jesus is undaunted in his pursuit. Look what he says, verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. and it is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. For God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the woman has been concerned with the what and the where of worship. What do we worship? Where do we worship? See. God's not so interested in those questions. He's interested in, um, in, in who we worship yeah. and why we worship. Amen. That's what he cares about. We see this dichotomy in the church, right? You, you, see, the, you see the frozen chosen? And, and you see the, the charismaniacs? And, and so I love, I love all my Christian brothers and sisters, but you got these two, it's like a teeter-totter. And, it, and it's the overemphasis on zeal or the overemphasis on knowledge. yeah, and it, and it just goes back and forth. And it's like, how, how about we just try to balance that? How, how many of you know zeal without knowledge is a snare, the right. Bible mm-hmm. says? Yeah. Knowledge for the sake of knowledge does nothing more than puff us up. Yeah. So that's not good either. Yeah. So those two have to coexist. They have to be balanced in the life of the believer. And then the woman says to him, well, I know Messiah is coming, the one who's called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. He's going to explain all this to us when he gets here. I guess we'll just have to shelve it for now and come back to it later. And he says, um, I'm right here. I who speak to you am he, the Christ. The better rendering in the Greek would be, I am is he who speaks to you. Amen. I am the I am. It's interesting to note, Jesus almost never comes right out and tells people in the gospel accounts that he's the Messiah so this time seems so different because he's really quite plain about it with her. But Jesus knows best who's ready to believe on him. And, yeah. and just then, in, in verse 27, his disciples came back. They had run to McDonald's and stood in line. Finally, came back, and and, and so um, she she's she's left her water jar. She's gone. She's run off to tell other people. I love that. And in fact, let me let me just read uh, 27 to 30. The disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but nobody said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, come see a man who's told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of town and were coming to him. Why? Because they knew about her. and She believes She is so convinced that she's gone back into town to confront the people who have shamed her for years to tell them about Jesus. She left her water there. She went to go tell others. She's finally got it. It's changing everything for her inside her. Suddenly there's a new set of priorities. See, instead of avoiding the townspeople by going to the well in the heat of the day, She's going to run right into the heart of town to tell the very people she was ashamed to run into that Jesus is here. See, so the love of Christ has come into her, and now the love of Christ compels her to go and tell others. And like Jesus, she, she just begins to break social norms in her expression of her faith, speaking to the men of the town. This is awesome. This is a, this is a picture of true salvation and regeneration. Her life is changed by the living God. Would that he would do this work in us, that we'd yeah. be bold <laughs> yeah. and go to people. Amen. In verse 31, we pick this up. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat, eat something. Eat, come on, you got to eat. But he said, Look, I have food that you don't even know about. I'm jazzed right now. Like, this is encouraging to me. This is my food. The disciples said, is anybody, Did somebody bring him something to eat? And Jesus said, verse 34, my food, the thing that nourishes my spirit is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I'm telling you, lift up your eyes and see that the harvest, the fields are, are wide unto harvest. Anybody who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. And here the the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. And I've sent you to reap for that which for you did not labor. Others have labored and you're entering into their labor. We've been planting the word of God in this place for decades and centuries and now you guys get to reap. Jesus' disciples, they, they just can't see past. Like, well, you gotta eat something. He's just filled up with the joy of the father seeing somebody just come to... To salvation and Jesus unpacks this. He tells the disciples that the thing that nourishes him is to do the work of God. And then, and then there's this admonition that I think all of us would do well to heed, including myself. He says, Look around you, look around your life, the places you go every week. The fields are wide under harvest, they're ripe. Right. Some people go forth and they plant seeds of the gospel and other people go forth and they have the privilege of being part of the reaping, seeing people come to Christ. And this labor of the kingdom has been going on for over 2,000 years. And I just would say to you this morning, let's enter in with gladness. We need to enjoy and engage with what God is doing in the world. Let's not miss this last tidbit here. Uh, See, the Samaritans are professing faith now. These half-breed Jews and and, and Gentile pagans worshiping other uh, deities, they're they're now professing the Savior of the world. They're now putting their faith in Jesus. And that's a huge deal for a group of people that have been mistreated by the Jews for centuries because in Christ, the Jewish Messiah, they are now experiencing forgiveness and acceptance. So Jesus heals to the uttermost. Everything prior to Jesus was an age of distance from God. Think about that. The Jews were and are God's covenant people. By the way, don't let anybody tell you that God does not care about the Jewish nation. Anymore. Yeah. Amen. He made a covenant with them, and God does not break his covenant. Amen. No. But they were never allowed close proximity to God himself. He dwelt among them, yes, but you couldn't touch him. I'm Just think about that. When he gave the law on Mount Sinai, they couldn't even touch the mountain. They, they couldn't even let the animals touch the mountain unless the animals died. And God was with them and he dwelt with them in the tabernacle later, but there were boundaries and there was distance. Think about the worship system of the old covenant. Even though Yahweh dwelt among them, not just anybody could come into his presence. Not just anyone could touch or handle the sacred objects of worship. To do so was certain death. Ask Uzzah. When the, cart, when the oxen stumbled and the cart tipped and they reached out to, to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling, <coughs> he died. You, you don't get to just run up and touch God in the Old Covenant. Some theologians refer to the Old Covenant as an age of distance, and I think they're right. You don't, don't touch Mount Sinai or you'll die. Don't touch the Ark of the Covenant or you'll die like Uzzah. Only the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies and only on one day a year and only covered in blood, And God's covenant people are far off. They're removed from him, even though he lived among them. But now, that's the old covenant reality. But now listen to this, these New Testament passages. Let the wondrous truth of God wash over you this morning. The new covenant is an age of nearness to God. What does does Ephesians say? Paul in Ephesians 2 says, Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're near. Our proximity is close. In Hebrews 4 and in Hebrews 10, I just pulled some different verses out of those two chapters. We're told, let us then with confidence. Do you know what the word confidence, con is with? Fide is faith. With faith, let us draw near to the throne of grace right now, that we may receive mercy right now and find grace in time of need right now. Therefore, brothers, we go on to Hebrews uh, uh, four, uh, 10 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places because of the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he's opened for us through that curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, he said, Let us draw near with true hearts, a full assurance of our faith, with our hearts been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised these things is faithful. Amen. Man, uh, that, the writer of Hebrews likes to go on about that. but James just says this in James 4, he says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Amen. How about that? God wants to be close. Right. He wants to be in, in us. they didn't get any closer than that. Amen. The change from the old covenant to the new covenant is astounding. Now, not only are we near in proximity to God and able to approach the throne of grace with confidence, but if you put your faith in Jesus, God comes to live inside of you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's mind-blowing. We would all do well before the day ends, take some time to reflect on his goodness and grace. See, Jesus Christ led a perfect, sinless life and completely resisted temptation in a way that you and I will never know. We give in to temptation at some point. Jesus never did. And yet he died on a cruel Roman cross to pay the penalty for your sins and mine, having perfectly kept and fulfilled God's law and having given his own life as a sacrifice on our behalf. Amen. In doing this, Jesus satisfied both the justice of God and the mercy of God. His resurrection three days later proved who he was and who he claimed to be. That resurrection opened the door for us to enter into the holy place by the new covenant. And now we come in relationship to God himself, the very God of the universe who yeah. comes to dwell on us by faith. This yes. is this is an absolutely incredible story. <laughs> when, you, when you say it like that, it's like, well, it's really actually unbelievable. It's unbelievable. The only thing this, this gospel thing has going for it is that it's absolutely 100% completely true. That's Folks, the fields are wide into harvest. If we're going to join Jesus in his work, we need to embrace John the Baptist's philosophy. He must increase we must decrease and and though i I normally don't quote john piper he really nailed it when he said that john the baptist could only delight in his public diminishing because in his private life in his heart christ had become supreme this leads us to the truth that those who are faithful with little can be trusted with more when christ is supreme can be trusted because it's not about us. The Bible calls this stewardship. What he calls us to is less of self, selflessness, which is one of the things that makes us suitable candidates for leadership. And and, and as our progression is, less of me, faithful stewardship, results in knowing him more and experiencing him in a deeper way. In order for Christ to become greater, we have to become less. We have to forgive as we've been forgiven. In order for Christ to become greater and us to become less, we need to love as we've been loved. John fifteen twelve. Jesus said, My command is this, love one another as I have loved you. We've got to do that. In order for Christ to become greater and, and for us to become less, we need to be students of his word. 2 Timothy 2, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved one a who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Amen. Are you a student of God's word, men and women? He was a student of his word. See the simplicity of the gospels found in the lyrics of the children's song. "Jesus loves me." This I know: For the Bible tells me so. little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Amen you know that Jesus loves you? Amen. Did you know that he's strong? Ask him about it. Talk to him. He's ready to tell you. Let him become greater in you so that you might become less. And you can start that today, right now, and then renew it every day. Watch what happens. Watch how God begins to work in and through you. Let's pray. Father, we ask for that in Jesus' name. We ask that you would make much of yourself, that you would increase, and that we would decrease, especially in our own eyes. We would be humble before you, and we would be willing vessels to be used by you to accomplish your purposes in the earth in these days. And what a moment in time that you've chosen for us as your church to be here. Lord, it's daunting, it's challenging, sometimes it feels overwhelming. Lord, we ask for your spirit to fill us afresh so that we would have the courage and the wherewithal and, and the clarity to walk forward with the gospel in these days. And we thank you for the privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. The fields are widened to harvest, my friends. Will you go? Will you join the Lord of the Harvest in his work this week? You know, it's the one thing you can't do in heaven. Yeah. So engage with the mission of Jesus to seek and save the lost. Preach the gospel in season and out of season. Preach Christ and him crucified for sin and risen from the dead. the Mass Road Church, you are sent. Wow.